listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So I was talking to a young man today about um, what it meant for him to be going to the Naval Academy. He just got accepted, and he's about to head off to the uh, uh, this this next fall. And he said, "Well, they'll sure they'll sure make a man out of me." I said, "Oh, wow, that's great. Good for you. What does that mean?" Kind of just pushing him a little bit. He says, "I have no idea, but they're going to make a man out of me." <laughs> And I, I pushed a little harder, and I said, okay, so uh, they're going to make a man out of you. You're not really sure what that is. You, you, uh, c- can you give me an idea of a quality that you think they might bring out of you or that they might uh, be able to offer? And he said, huh, yeah, honor. I thought that was pretty cool. Also right out of the brochure, but still, it was <laughs> honor. Um, I said, anything else? He says, huh, I don't know, McAllister, what, what, what do you think? And it's just one of those things that kind of blurted out real quick. I didn't really think about it. I said, resolve. And uh, he said, wow, yeah, huh. Yeah, maybe you're right. And then, then we got into the whole you know, lecture on resolve, which is the fundamental barrier between kids and grown-ups resolve. I've made that case, at least in here, in relationship to the teaching, uh, that there is um, this idea that uh, uh, we'll have some born-again experience where we suddenly, oh, everything makes sense, I am now enlightened, or something like that, and we're waiting for that desperately. Every single time we show up to you know, our sangha meetings, or uh, you know, we're on retreat, or something, that maybe some blast will Strike, grace will hit. An upwelling of love will come bursting forth through my noggin up into the heavens or whatever. And then everything will be okay. And quite frankly, that's not how it works. That this work, more than anything else, is about resolve. It's a fundamental shift in the way we deal with the way that we live. That our experience of pain and suffering doesn't end, but our ability to face it constructively begins to become enhanced. So imagine uh, my surprise when I was, I've been uh, really interested in, in, I was rereading Stephen Batchelor's book, I I mentioned this to you guys, Stephen Batchelor's book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, which I think is quite cool. It strips the cultural trappings of the teaching down quite a bit. And he kind of, he loses jargon, you know, he just lets go of it and uh, then kind of goes at this whole teaching from, uh, I think, a really kind of creative and incredibly eloquent place. Uh, So I wanted to read to you this, this one piece that... It just miraculously corresponded to the conversation that I had this afternoon. He, uh, he points out to our, our typical suffering or our pain. 
that we deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, in a really beautiful way here. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. Anguish, he says, emerges from craving for life to be other than it is. In the face of a changing world, such craving seeks consolation in something permanent or reliable, in a self that is, control, that is in control of things, in a God who is in charge of destiny. The irony of this strategy is that it turns out to be the cause of what it seeks to dispel. I'm going to read that one more time. The irony is this strategy... The irony, excuse me, the irony of this strategy is that it turns out to be the cause of what it seeks to dispel. In yearning for anguish to be assuaged in such ways, we reinforce what creates anguish in the first place. The craving for life to be other than it is. We find ourselves spinning in a vicious circle. The more acute the anguish, the more we want to get rid of it. The more we want to get rid of it, the more acute it gets. Such behavior, and this is where it gets really juicy here, such behavior is not just a silly mistake that we can shrug off. It is an ingrained habit, an addiction. It persists even when we are aware of its self-destructive nature. To counter it requires resolve of equivalent force to live in another way. This is unlikely, though, to lead to an immediate change in the way we feel. A smoker may fervently resolve to give up cigarettes, but that does not prevent the tug of longing each time he enters a smoke-filled room. What changes is his resolve. Dharma practice is founded on resolve. This is not an emotional conversion, a devastating realization of the error of our ways, a desperate urge to be good, but an ongoing, heartfelt reflection on priorities, values, and purpose. We need to keep taking stock of our life in an unsentimental, uncompromising way. That's pretty much the teaching right there. Do you take stock fearlessly of your life as it is and get caught by the wish, the desire, the hope, the yearning that it'll be something other than what it is? Or have you been able to make that shift in the way you live and say to yourself, here's what is, here's how I'm going to live. This is how I choose to live. This is not easy. As I say often enough, it is a simple concept, but it is not easy. Eckhart Tolle sometimes says, it's, uh, um, we accept, then act. Can you accept, then act? <coughs> Most of us not only don't accept, we go to war with things that are external. And because of that, we are actually creating war that is fueled internally. So we, we are at war for peace. And it never works. The universe always wins. So if you were to fearlessly take stock right now, what's something that you could apply some heartfelt resolve toward in relationship to spiritual practice? Every one of us wants peace. Every one of us wants peace and we have other things that we think will get us peace that aren't what we have now something 
more. And this isn't to say that we should never set goals. By all means, set goals. Have wants, have desires. Just don't let them have you. When you're not caught by your thought, freedom shows up effortlessly. And in that freedom, we can always respond to any situation generously. Simple but not easy, once again. But it takes resolve. And if you're one of those people who doesn't have a lot of resolve, you don't, you, that wouldn't be something that uh, uh, someone would use to describe you, for instance. Okay. Can you start small? If any of you have ever felt addicted to anything, okay, addicted to anything, did you ever break that habit? How did you do it? took some courage, took some guts, took some resolve. The hardest addiction perhaps to break, the hardest one of all, is the addiction to the idea that I'm in here and everything else is out there. That we are actually utterly and totally one. And we are also many. That both of those truths are real. How do we live in that space? Well, the clarity to that question begins to unfold the minute we start meeting deeper and deeper stillness. And the way we meet deeper and deeper stillness is to have a meditation practice. And meditation practices really begin to carry our work in this open, beautiful container of sangha, of teaching and teacher. It begins to happen when we have the resolve to sit still. To not think this thing through, but be. Just simply be. And every time we sit in meditation, we have a chance to just be as we are. To fully open to, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, things as it is. Plural things as it is. And when we open to things as it is, that is grace. When we rest in things as it is, that is ease. And when we can rest in grace and ease, and we can engage the world from that orientation, grace and ease, our entire life becomes a conscious expression of this awakening. Of a life not bound by anguish, suffering, sadness, pain, negativity. We've shifted our perspective radically. And our perspective not only on the world, but on other beings. And then this is how we change the world. So tonight, when you sit, despite the fact that uh, you may not think of it this way, if you can sit there as a full expression of silence, of stillness, you are changing the world.
Last week we spoke about uh, being really clear about whatever snakes are in your path. That they may look like snakes, but actually they're gifts. Every bit of pain, every bit of doubt, fear, every bit of negativity that we might ever run into, for instance, in relationship to this teaching, is an offering to deepen our practice. Rumi uh, says, pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Pretty cool. I'll say that again. Pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Now notice uh, our friend Rumi doesn't tell us what's behind the veil, but you will go behind it. Okay? Doesn't tell us what's there, but that you have this opportunity. And so. Uh, I have uh, uh, spent a fair amount of time kind of describing, you know, authentic spiritual work, and I, I have some uh, opinions and stories about what I think authentic is and what inauthentic is, and none of it really matters. But if we're really looking at this work, and we're really interested in coupling a kind of resolve with perfecting not only our character, but the character of the world in which we live. If that's really kind of somewhere in our hearts and minds as we approach this work, then we can look at this process as being fairly simple. The first thing is to recognize, quite simply, is to recognize that there's a struggle. That there's a struggle. Even if life is easy for us, there's something, some kind of Burn some type of ache inside that says something along the lines of it ain't quite right. There's something missing. There's something not okay. It might be subtle. It might be overt. The gift is if you are in a situation where your struggle is overt, it's loud. It tends to force a kind of resolve. If it's more subtle, it's a little bit more difficult to generate the kind of courage and um, chutzpah to keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay? But nonetheless, this, this fundamental space that something's not quite right, this becomes really, really, really powerful. So if anybody in this room, and there may be one or two of you who are feeling like everything isn't perfect, that something is amiss, you're in good shape. Welcome. Okay? That really is kind of the starting point. It is the starting point. The next thing we recognize from this idea that there is a struggle is that there is a cause to this struggle. This is a much deeper practice. Recognizing what the cause to this struggle, this torment that we might feel, what it actually is. But once we get to the roots of the, the causes, the cause to our, to, the cause to our struggle, once we kind of un, unpack, deconstruct it, and kind of can really, really, really look at it, we start recognizing that there's a way to end it. So um, for those of you keeping score at home, I just squished the Four Noble Truths into three, 
and I know, I know I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, somebody's going to be pissed, but I don't really care. The, the whole idea here is that we take, we take these fundamental tenets of mystical Christianity, mystical Judaism, okay, the mystical aspect of Islam, the higher teachings of Buddhism, we can start seeing that these things are at play, these, these three little areas. There's a struggle, there's a cause, and here's how you undo it. So the struggle itself, if you buy into what Rumi had to say, isn't a struggle at all. It's a gift. It's the, it's the point of entry. It's where we start. If you've ever had kind of something in your experience, is that, gosh, my life isn't going exactly as I'd planned. What's John Lennon's line? Help me. Life is, what happen- is what's happening when you're making other plans. How does it... Does anybody remember this? Beatles? Any Beatles scholars in the room? No? Life is what's happening when you're making other plans. Is that it? Life is what's happening when you're making other plans? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's really true. It's really true when we begin to kind of look at, look at this experience. And, damn, I did everything I was supposed to do, and this is what happened? Now, you can get into trouble, especially in Buddhist circles, because you can think, oh, well, that's just my karma, which I think is a real cop-out, personally. I think this is one of the ways we can let really sacred and powerful Buddhist teachings kind of get co-opted by, uh, you know, uh, misunderstandings and twisted, twisted versions of the teaching. Here again, I might get in trouble for saying this, uh, but I think that if you blame any of this on karma, you're not really taking any responsibility for your own happiness. And I would submit that doing so is actually the way we kind of begin to stiffen up the practice a little bit. We begin to let every single challenge inform and reinform a deeper approach to meeting our lives with deeper and deeper and deeper awareness. All right? I've uh, pointed out the, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, in contemporary film is from uh, the Fight Club. Chuck Palahniuk wrote, wrote the book. If you, if you haven't read it, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the film just does a great job. Um, over a long enough timeline, the rate of death will always reach 100%. Everyone in this room knows at some level that they're going to die. And what happens is most people are in this wildly uh, uh, interesting denial of that. Um, you don't have to dwell on it and indulge it. But knowing that there is affinitude, that all things are temporary, really can help inspire and stiffen up a practice. We, this is serious business. Let's, let's get to work. What are you waiting for? Let's play. You know? It's not about moving the ball down the field so much as it is about being very, very aware of the game. So we get into trouble. We get into the struggle when we realize that there is this ultimate finitude. We recognize that everything is temporary, yet we build entire lives around protecting... um, and uh, preventing any and all conceivable threats to our lives, to our loves, to our livelihoods, our reputations, our minds. And this isn't a bad thing. 
unless we get caught by this pursuit. If we are caught by the pursuit of keeping everything permanent as it is, here again, we will lose always. The universe always wins. What will happen with the natural outcropping of that? Suffering. So learning how to dance in the face of that fundamental truth that all things are temporary can lead to a tremendously inspiring life. (coughs) Many of us in this room have seen those lives being led. They're powerful. They're seductive. We want to be near those people. They somehow are able to make it work even when it's not working. And yet there's strength to them. They're not mushy. They have the spine indeed that a meditator needs they meet the world from an upright place even in the middle of hell and the cool thing is about this is they don't have anything that you don't already have their perspective might be a little different but you've got the same stuff you have the right stuff Once we start playing this out, once we start really looking very, very carefully at our experience, we can start recognizing the cause to struggle. We recognize the struggle, yeah, okay, I'm there. It might be really easy for you to recognize that right now, okay? But what is the cause? Well, we can, we can look at things superficially. Well, the cause is that, um, uh, you know, my house isn't big enough, you know, uh, or that I just don't have the right purse or in my case a purse which is a man purse is that right it's a man somebody told me it was a purse yeah a purse yeah i don't do too well with the purse thing um, but we uh <laughs> what you know we just don't have we don't feel complete somehow Something's missing. Something is lacking. All right? When we begin to look at that, when we begin to look at that little entity within us that feels like it's lacking, we begin to see that it always feels like it's lacking, even if it gets what it wants. It's a perpetual lack machine that just keeps spinning. It just keeps running. And that we listen to it. And we we really hear it. It resonates. I need more. I need more. I'm not enough. I'm not enough or I'm too much, whatever the case. It's something that is off-center, off-kilter. And so we begin to, we begin to, on the one hand, look at our struggle and begin to cling to it. We become addicted to our own struggle. Some of you may know a person like that or you even might be in, in this category. You're addicted to your struggle. Because who the hell would you be without it? Imagine that. I pointed this out. I had uh, uh, one of the Sangha members say, you know, I was really thinking about what my life would be like without fear, without any fear. And it was really interesting, the conversation that she and I were kind of able to have from this. Well, So I'll ask it again, because I think it's one of the most profound spiritual questions we could ever really entertain. What would your life look like if you had absolutely no fear? 
living a life from that perspective shifts not only action, but also the embodiment of who and what you are. doesn't mean you necessarily, your personality necessarily changes, but it does mean that your way of approaching everything can shift. So what would happen if you were no longer clinging to struggle? What would happen if you let go? You began to become so aware of your struggle that the struggle no longer held you. If you became so aware of your clinging that you could, you could literally watch internally as you began to grasp or avert things, <laughs> suddenly the grasping and aversion tendencies that you have become conscious and now you have this beautiful thing called choice. What supports this? Well, the resolve that's the natural outcropping of stillness. If we were going to break this down into three simple things, like why is it that, that there is this struggle? What's the cause? We might look at it as we don't recognize that everything is temporary, or we, we recognize it, but we don't really acknowledge it fully. If we can acknowledge everything fully, that everything truly is temporary, even our bad moods, even our depression, even our glory, even our song, it's all temporary. It shifts the way we feel like we need to live. Another reason why we struggle, another cause to this, we don't recognize that everything in this reality is utterly interdependent with everything else. Nothing can exist in isolation. Nothing. There is no such thing as independence. And if you're doubting this aspect of the teaching, challenge yourself. Challenge yourself on this. Well, there's free will. Yes, there is. But free will still depends on clean air. Or air. <laughs> it depends on your ability to get food. Have you ever recognized when you... I use the example of... Uh, breakfast in the morning. It's just about my favorite, my favorite meal. But what exactly is in your breakfast? What's gone into that? Can you taste the sunshine in those eggs that you eat? If you can't, try it. Can you taste the pain of the person who picked the coffee beans that you've just ground? If you can't, I suggest you try it. This is a way of living more deeply. And when we resolve to live more deeply, it's amazing what can kind of unfold. So we recognize that everything is not only uh, temporary, but everything is interdependent. There's a Holocaust survivor who was telling the story. I think I, I shared this with you, how he was um, uh, 
had his glasses. He was very, very poorly sighted. And his, he had his glasses taken off of his face by a young guard and then smashed on the ground. And he realized his whole life, he depended on the kindness of strangers not to take his glasses from him so that he could see. We depend on each other for our very lives. Try walking across Mount Diablo Boulevard even when the walk sign is flashing. You depend on people in those big, giant automobiles talking on their cell phones to be very careful. Everything is interdependent. Lastly, we can look at the cause to this struggle as being we don't recognize that everything is God-infused. Everything, everything is the infinite expressing itself continually. We look at God as being out there or the infinite as being out there as opposed to the infinite stretching equally inward and outward. That this mylar sheath we call skin, we call body, is something that is quite translucent in terms of the infinite. The stars without are equal to the stars within, as Immanuel Kant says. It's all here. The entire universe. This is why in Zen sometimes we refer to swallowing the Pacific Ocean in a single gulp. In the world of form... You cannot do that. Okay? But in the world of the formless, it's already been done. So how do we end the struggle? Step three. Step one, there's a struggle. Step two, there's the cause. We don't, we don't get it. We don't see reality in the way that uh, allows for a deepening. And then lastly, how do we end this struggle? Step one, please become aware of your struggle, your clinging. Become aware of your clinging. What are you grabbing onto? What stories are you grabbing onto? What narratives do you have playing in your head that repeat themselves again and again and again? Become aware of them. Becoming aware of them gives us a perspective. Remember, awareness of the struggle is not bound by the struggle. Awareness of our interior dialogue is not bound by our interior dialogue. Awareness of what is, is in fact freedom from what seems to be keeping us small. Practicing that awareness, supported with a a meditation, meditation work where there's some resolve, kind of stiffening it a little bit. This is powerful. Secondarily, becoming aware uh, how, um, how we go after and avoid things that support our clinging. Clinging becomes our addiction. Okay? And we tend to choose based on our addiction to keep the addiction going. What is it that you choose How do you make choices during your day? If you're always going after something because it feels good, every one of us knows that that can get us into trouble. Just as if you're always going for something because it sounds right, that can get us into trouble. If you go after something that feels bad because you feel it's what you deserve, okay, 
that can get us into trouble. Having a perspective, an awareness of what is, that gives us an opportunity to accept and then act. That shifts everything. Instead of habitual mind patterns or bodily patterns, what happens? We begin to open. We begin to open. Instead of our pursuit of happiness, our life becomes a continual pursuit of openness. Lastly, the best and probably the most profound way to help support this whole thing is probably no surprise to any of you, but become still. Become still. When you become still, you can watch what moves. And we all know what moves is the ego. We can begin to study every single thing about us we can begin to welcome, in the Buddhist tradition, welcome Mara's armies attacking us, knowing full well that there's nothing that they can really take, nothing that they can get. Every situation from this point onward becomes a welcome, open hand, a bow, an availability. There's such steadiness into who and what we are Anything that shows up is welcomed. And when this happens, when we can welcome everything, Rumi's quote suddenly makes sense. Pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Behind that veil, what's there? A conscious, embodied expression of spirit. And it's you. And it's me. Nothing divided. Nothing lacking. Just wow. Good, you all get A's. <laughs> yes, sir. When you were uh, speaking earlier and talking about resolve. Resolve, yes. I tend to think of the word resolve as I am resolving to do something. Mm-hmm which kind of gets into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we seem to be concentrating on the present. Mm-hmm. So, do you mean resolve in, in a slightly different way? Or, or do you like the word vow? Vow. Vow. Your partner doesn't like that word at all. She's, she's shaking her head right yeah. The reason I'm asking is because um, what happens if your resolve is to live fully in the present? Then where are we? 
resolve in and of itself can be kind of one of these really cool timeless commitments to being that isn't bound by future or past. You could, of course, say, I resolve not to be the person that I used to be. Right? You could do that. Or I resolve never to have another drink. Okay? But in this case, where I'm kind of pointing the, the energy of that kind of resolve is much more uh, in line with, or at least I hope I'm articulating it this way, in line with being here, opening to this as it is. And that kind of resolute approach to living really does wonders to kind of clean the lens through which we typically view our lives. Now you're mocking me. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. I was setting up. <laughs> you did, yeah. Go, 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 yeah. No, it's that's really true, Dave. It's really true. It is. It's that is the resolution. The the, uh, um, and but it's such a beautiful. It's it's just so powerful. I mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed anything in your life that isn't radically enhanced by a deep sacred oath or promise. So what's the oath? What is the oath? Yeah. What is it? I'm asking. Yeah, but I'm asking you. Oh, okay. Because I'm confused about it in a way. Because um, there is the, uh, as I understand it, yeah. the, uh, what, you're, what I'm resolving to do is to totally accept what's, whatever is right now. To accept whatever is with total relaxation. And then engage your life from that place of surrender. That's the oath. And that's the oath. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's very hard sometimes to keep oaths. But that's what makes this so (laughs) damn fun. But that's sort of what you keep reminding yourself. Yes. Yes. Every, Every single time we meditate... It's a reminder. Every single time we meditate, it's a reminder of what it is that we're doing. Even though the ego will invariably hit at some point in time in some meditator's practice, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? And then it, it has its own little diet. Well, so I can become a better person, so I can become you know, nicer, so I can be... It's none of those things. Ego, ego doesn't have the capacity to actually see beyond itself, right? So it locks into these really interesting little argumentative deals, but what's actually beyond ego, what can watch ego, that's what's watching this transpire. That opening is precisely what we are unpacking as we sit still. When you are meditating, you are watching your breath. You are watching your mind. You are watching the feelings that arise within your body. What gets exercised there? The spiritual athleticism of that is working out this watcher, this witness, this awareness. And this awareness is identical in all of us. We start recognizing the temporary nature of all things, the interdependence of all things, and how it's all infused with this open awareness that is infinite. What happens then is this miracle of awakening begins to unfold spontaneously through us.
as us. Cool. <laughs> Did I miss? Hey. The metaphor of the veil. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't. I don't follow it. Maybe it's because my Western mind thinks veils are trying to hide behind something. It's exactly right. So I would say your interpretation is exactly right. In other words, we live behind. Um, I'm going to use another Rumi quote. You ready? Past and future veil. Veil God from our sight. Burn both of them with fire. Okay? In other words, past, our, our tendency to cling to past, our tendency to cling towards the future, your cling, cling to the future, future outcomes, past events, right? That's the only place ego can go. Or... Another place. It's evaluation of that future or an evaluation of that past. Okay? So as a result, we're never in the now. The now is a place where we are actually, instead of being bound by egoic movement, right? Tilting, tilting, tilting. We now, in the, in the present moment, are opening to what's beyond the ego eternally. All right? There are no veils there. There is nothing to hide behind there. We are utterly and completely naked. We are beyond naked. We are without skin. We are the universe. An open series of constellations just like you might find in the summer sky. Right? Okay? We're no longer veiled. We're not hiding behind a mask. So that's what I'm saying. You're you're not behind the veil anymore. Not anymore. And that's one of the scary, it's one of the scary, I'm sorry, it's one of the scariest aspects of this practice. Is that there, there's no hiding, brother. You know, it's it, man. You are, you're exposed. You're exposed to the light of awareness, right? <laughs> and uh, damn, those old patterns that we had to ditch or run away or whatever, it's like they no longer work. We know exactly what's going on. And what do you see? You see ego just, just down front and center on the stage of mind, just kind of go, you know, it's like jigs up. And as crazy weird as that metaphor may sound, it's an incredibly freeing moment. And there's some grief associated with it too. We can't go back. Just like you can't go back to being 19 years old anymore. Nor can I, thankfully. But uh, you get the idea. You know, we can't go back. But we can be. And that being radically enhances whatever future outcome we may have in store. Great question. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Got time for one more? Does anybody uh, have anything that's. Uh, yes, ma'am? Sometimes I talk to people about. They say they can't meditate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I tell them, well, they don't have to do anything. They just have to sit there and watch their breath. And just that simple act makes things, lets things happen. Mm-hmm. And 
explain that any further because at least that's the way it appears to me. Just sitting still and not doing anything makes changes in the way I respond or act or am or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard work. And I don't know how to say anything more than that to, to people. They, they don't the one thing you can tell somebody who's like a beginning meditator is do it, do it, you'll get high do it, <laughs> do it. <laughs> come on, everybody's doing it yeah, I uh... <laughs> sorry all the cool kids are doing it you know. <laughs> show some resolve, okay you know, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't it's it's the hardest thing. I've said this a lot. It's the hardest thing to market, you know, because what's what's le- what what's available to you? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> Sign me up. Right? You know, meditation is actually consciously meeting what we meet every night in, in you know the stage four sleep. All of us meditate every single. 24 our circadian rhythms meditation is built into it it's built in except typically it's unconscious it just happens when we go from kind of the the dream state into the dreamless state and we kind of just that's when it looks like some of the most rejuvenative work happens neurochemically bodily and so i don't know whoever came up with the bright idea hey why don't we do this in the middle of the day when we're awake and which is exactly what we do. We can take, you know, brainwave readings of ourselves when we're, you know, the deepest parts of meditation. What kind of wave pattern do you see? Delta. It's exactly the same wave pattern you see when you're at stage four sleep. And so what are we doing? We're bringing that natural, natural tendency of total openness and surrender of mind and body that we find in those, you know, the 90 minutes of stage four sleep we get each night. Okay. We're now bringing it into 20 minutes, 35 minutes during the day, at the start of our day, in the afternoon, whenever. Yeah. So that's, that's what happens. <laughs> how, to, how to sell it? I just believe that the only way you can really, this is just me, but the only way you can really sell this is to just be the meditation. Walk the talk. You know? It becomes, it's a, meditators vibe differently, you know. So do uh, people who are so, like, I find sometimes that uh, yoga practitioners can vibe vibe differently too. Um, Except typically, and I'm making a judgment, so forgive, but most Bikram instructors are total pains in the side. Utterly and completely, you know. Um, <laughs> Bikram yoga, for those of you that don't know, it's where they, they crank it up to, you know, 100, 108 degrees or whatever it is, and then you do these the same poses every time. It's quite, it's quite fun. Uh, I, ha- I happen to really, I happen to really like it. Uh, honestly, I really do like it. But I, I have never, I, I actually, I take this back. There was one, there was one Bikram instructor who clearly got life at a much deeper level and the quality of that class was fundamentally different from anybody else that had been teaching in that particular yoga shala you know 
I don't know how I got here on this, but uh, <laughs> stick with me. You know. um, I did want to say it is such a pleasure to be here. I feel so fortunate to be able to do this each week. Um, and I feel fortunate that uh, we are still able to keep these doors open. But they do stay open because of you. They do stay open because of the generosity of people that decide that this is important. And I'm not making an appeal. I'm just telling you that uh, this, is, this, is, this doesn't just happen. Um, and uh, I also would say that the, one of the beauties of Sangha is that it allows for us to look across the room at someone we don't know. It allows us to see ourselves all the time. All of us here in this room are working really hard. You know, there's this goal that we seem to be fighting for, and then you've got me telling you, no goal, no goal, you know, and whatever, and that gets to be kind of strange and weird, but at the same time, it's like we keep kind of coming back. There's something here that resonates, that this teaching actually tweaks inside of us that allows for us to kind of burst in a way that we can't quite understand. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with a time-honored series of traditions that woven together and expressed in this kind of weird, bizarre, postmodern way still resonates with humanity just the way it did at the time of the Buddha, of Christ, of Muhammad, any of the spiritual heavyweights. You look at them, I mean, it's just, it works. It brings something. So, thank you. Thank you for being here.